0: the prophecy of Isaiah, and reading in chapter 21, and at verse 11, you'll remember that this is one of the
1: prophecies delivered to the nations by God's watchman, God's prophet, Isaiah, and it's delivered against the nation of Edom. In verse 11, the burden against Duma, which is a a name used here for Edom. It means silence. The burden against Duma, he calls to me out of Seir.
0: Mount Seir was the dominant mountain in Edom. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back.
1: And uh, especially uh, tonight, the words of verse 12, where the watchman says, The morning comes, and also the night. If you will
0: inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, as we saw in the morning, these
1: verses contain very obviously a question and an answer. The question comes from the nation of Edom. This nation was a neighboring nation to Israel. They were spiritually a very privileged people, not simply because they dwelt hard by Israel, but because they were descended from Abraham themselves and from Isaac. They were in fact the descendants of Esau, who was Israel's brother or Jacob's brother. They also had the sign of faith on their bodies. They were a circumcised people. So these things remind us of the heritage that these people could or should have had. But they had long since a broken covenant with God and turned away from him. And in fact, they had come full circle. And by that, I mean that they had joined with the mockers of God and with the persecutors of God's people. And we saw in the morning how serious a thing that is to sit in the scorner's chair. It is something that invites the judgment of God upon you. If you are guilty of it, you are almost defying him to strike you down. And indeed, that to some extent is what has happened now because Edom has suddenly been plunged into darkness herself. And in this little prophecy here, or powerful prophecy, she is enduring the night time of God's judgment under the harsh rule of a foreign power. But in these verses, we have a voice from Edom, a question. And it's directed towards Israel, the people of God. Specifically, it's directed towards God's watchman, God's prophet. And the question is, watchman, what of the night? Or what time is it? What portion of the night is it? This is the first watch, the second, the third, or the fourth. In other words, These people here, under God's judgment, enduring it on this earth,
0: are asking, when will God's judgment be over? Is there any sign of day? Now, there's
1: some good in this question. And we saw that in the morning. First of all, the Edomites here are recognizing God's judgment. That's a good thing. Uh, They don't just think. Uh, It's an unfortunate series of events that has overwhelmed them. They recognize that God has ordered their circumstances. Their judgment is of God. They are also recognizing who God's watchman is. They are addressing their question to Isaiah. And they are asking him what time of night it is. They're seeking spiritual guidance, in other words, where they should seek it from someone who knows God and someone whom God has appointed. But although these things are all good and very good, and in many respects, these things are far ahead of many of us, there's still no sign in their question of any sorrow for sin or any spirit of repentance or anything like that at all. They simply want. The judgment finished. Now, I want to turn tonight with you to the watchman's answer, or to Isaiah's answer, the prophet's answer. What does he say to them? Well, he says, first of all, in verse 12, the morning comes and also
0: the night. So first, there's good news. The good news is that morning will come. In
1: other words, if the night is the judgment of God, then the morning coming means that God's judgment will pass. And that shouldn't surprise us because God's judgments in this world do pass. He afflicts for a time and then He raises His hand. It doesn't mean that we don't deserve the judgment to last longer. It means that He raises His hand In grace. He does that so often because he's promised to do that. That was the significance, if you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, that was the significance of the rainbow in the sky after the flood. The rainbow itself is a covenantal sign. The covenant that God made there is sometimes referred to as the covenant with Noah, and that is not wrong because it was a covenant with Noah. But over and above that, it is a covenant with the earth. That expression is used in that passage. It is God's covenant with the earth. And the multicolored rainbow is God's pledge to be gracious to the earth in the sense that he will never again deluge it. In fact, he won't send the final fire upon it, the fire of destruction and ultimately of purification too, but He won't send that until, as it were, the time is exhausted. There is an abundant period of grace. And in that period of grace, the Spirit of God is striving with men. He strives with us all. But when the period of grace is shut, it will be destroyed by the last, by the final and the general judgment of God. When the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth and all the works that are in it, will be consumed. But as long as that rainbow appears, and every time it appears in the sky, it reminds us that whatever judgment we experience in this
0: life, it will pass. He lifts his hand off us as individuals and as nations.
1: Now, of course, people interpret that in different ways. You know, you have you have somebody who's perhaps laid aside with a severe sickness because God has appointed that as a particular judgment for some evil that the person has done. But, and maybe, like I mentioned last week, they make promises and resolutions in that kind of situation. And God removes his judgment. And instead of being prompted by that to, to serve the Lord and to turn to him in faith, it actually moves you to say, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't really God after all. Or even if it was, maybe God wasn't angry with me after all. After all, these things just come in life. So you interpret God removing his judgment as though he's not
0: angry with you anymore. And for Edom, deliverance came. Edom got back a measure of independence. And so that was morning coming. But nothing changed in Edom. And so then you have the bad news. The watchman says, the morning comes, but also the night. And of course, what
1: that means is that the judgment of God will reappear.
0: Why? Well, because of what I said a minute ago. Because they didn't change. They learned nothing. They weren't humbled. They weren't taught. They weren't corrected.
1: They weren't reformed. They just carried on the way they were before. So the night came. But this time, you'll notice a difference. This time, there's no relief. When the night comes this time, the night is here to stay. The morning comes and also the night, but not again the morning. So the morning comes and also the night. In other words, this night remains. What you have here really from the hand of God is a night like no other night. A judgment like no other judgment in this world. It is an endless night. The endless night of a lost eternity. It's the night on which a day will never again break.
0: And that's a solemn thought to contemplate and a solemn experience to experience. Now, for the Lord's people, things are so different from this. The the Lord's people have their nights too. We have nights of pain. We have
1: nights of perplexity when providence appears to be against us. Like Jacob himself, who I mentioned earlier, he... He said he would go down to the grave mourning because he had lost Joseph and then he had lost Benjamin. We have what St. John of Damascus used to refer to as the long, dark nights of the soul that come upon us. And when these nights come our way, judgments or chastisements from the Lord, our enemy says, where is your God? Remember how much that hurt David in Psalm 42 and in other Psalms too, Psalm 43 and others. Where is your God? They say. And one of the reasons that hurts so much is because a lot of the time you're saying it yourself. Like David said in the 77th Psalm, Has God forgotten to be gracious? The fact is that God sends days and he sends nights. God sends the day of adversity and he sends the day of prosperity. But you see, the difference. For you as a believer, if you are a believer tonight, the difference for you is that this day-night cycle, this constant cycle of day-night, day-night, always
0: ends in day. It ends in day. And, And if the night for the unbeliever is like no
1: other night, well, the day for the Christian is like no other day. It's an endless day. It's a day on which the sun never goes down. In fact, there's no need for the sun, not the sun as as we know it. The reason for that is because our last day, the final day, the day which remains, is a day that begins differently from the rest. The, The light that ushers in that day is not the light of the sun. It's the light of the Son of Righteousness who arises with healing in his wings. It's the direct light of the glory of God. And it's that light that will be all the glory in Emmanuel's land, as Samuel Rutherford said. And of course, the writer of the Revelation, that's the Apostle John, He speaks of these things when he sees uh, the glory of heaven itself. In Revelation 21 and verse 23, he says this that the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. So the original light source, which is God Himself, is the light source of the New Jerusalem. The Lamb, we're told, is its light. Just later on, in the 25th verse, we're told that there shall be no night there. And a little later on again, there shall be no night there, and they need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And that's why, uh, Christian friends, when night comes to us here and When when God frowns sometimes or when he removes the light of his countenance and we find ourselves plunged into darkness, it doesn't take away our hope. And the reason it doesn't take away our hope is because, like I said in the morning, we're not prisoners of a false hope. But you have hope in yourself. In fact, you have Christ in you, who is the very hope of glory. That's why we sing psalms like this, weeping may for a night endure, at morn doth joy arise. No, the unbeliever can't sing that. The, The unbeliever can't sing that with confidence. I mean, your judgment might pass like Edom's judgment. It might be true to say to you that the morning comes, but the night comes to you. The night will always come to you. So I can't say for you that you, your weeping may endure for a night, but at mourn doth joy arise. But I can say it for you, Christian friend, that joy will come with the morning, because the morning comes. That's why we can sing too, as we will later, more than the watchman waits for dawn, my soul waits for the Lord. And uh, let me say this to you, if if you are cast down, and it may please the Lord to bless this thought to you, it's not easy to be comforted when we're cast down. Um, in Psalm 77, the psalmist uses a very strange expression. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. It's as though he's conscious of the truths that ought to bring him comfort, He's conscious that God is the God of all comfort and grace, but his soul refuses that. Sometimes we can be that low. But nonetheless, maybe if you, by God's grace, just realize that the day will come to you, you will never be plunged into an endless night, but you will be ushered into the glory of an endless day. If knowing that maybe can just bring some of the joy of that day to you before it actually arrives, uh, that surely makes sense. If I know for a fact, in other words, if
0: I know for a fact that I shall be everlastingly happy one day, then why should I not be happy now? But you'll notice that for Edom, there's no hope, there's no hope as a nation. Edom is doomed. She's doomed. And everyone in Edom
1: who shares her lifestyle and identifies with her, living by her code and by her ethics and by her standards, everyone who lives in her and with her shall perish with her.
0: And they'll find themselves in an endless night. Now, it's a horrifying thing to contemplate an endless night.
1: We're given some insights into the awfulness of hell in the scriptures. But for our purposes, we have a glimpse in the passage that we read together from the New Testament, the so-called parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In that so-called parable, we're taken into an endless night and into the place of silence. Edom is called here Duma, the place of silence. Now, it may be strange to speak of a lost eternity or to speak of hell as a place of silence because in one way it
0: most certainly isn't. We're told in Scripture that it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. But there's two types of uh, silence, I think, that characterise this lost eternity. One is the absence of joy. Uh,
1: When God was judging a people through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of
0: gladness. Now these things are gone in hell. They are just not there. There's no happiness to be found. There's no laughter. There is also an absence of God's voice. Um,
1: and by that I mean God's voice in the gospel. You know, the thing that really brings cheer into this world, whether you know it and believe it or not, is the good news of the gospel. It does bring hope and it brings consolation. That's why very often you find unbelievers who appear to be happy quite a lot of the time are suddenly plunged into situations and they begin to envy God's people. And they say things like, well, I wish I had what you had. Because they know that you have a voice from God that gives you hope for the future. It gives you consolation. But in terms of hell, well, there's nothing like that there. That's gone. No consolation, no hope, no mirth, no gladness. In these respects, it's a place of deathly silence. It's a place where God just doesn't speak anymore. And it's so solemn to think that there are so many people there. And I hope and pray you won't be off that number. But there are so many there who heard the voice of God in this life and they heard the sound of the gospel, but they chose to reject it. It's an interesting thing, let me just say this in the passing, that the last Edomites that you come across in the Bible are in fact the family of Herod, who was an idumean Now the Edomians were the uh, group of Edomites that moved into part of Judah when Judah was taken captive. And uh, they were distinctly known as the Idumeans. They were from Edom. The last trace that you have of this people, as a people, is the family of Herod. And um, whenever I think of Herod, um, there's an incident particularly that comes to me. Well, maybe there's two. Uh, There's certainly the the beheading of John the Baptist. That's one. The other is when um, Herod meets Christ for the only time. And uh, we're told that Herod asked him many questions. And we're told told too that
0: Christ uh, answered him, not a word. Not a word. Christ spoke to Pilate. Christ
1: said nothing to Herod. Why? Because there was nothing more to say. Herod had heard enough. He used to listen to John the Baptist for the purposes of entertainment. Sometimes he was moved by what John the Baptist said. But by the time he got to meet Christ in person, which interestingly he was wanting to do, Christ had nothing to say to him. And uh, for some of you, maybe the thought of God not speaking to you is like a dream. Uh, Maybe you often say, and even you say it to To Christians who who might be witnessing to you about God, you say, look, don't trouble me about that. I I don't want to hear what the Bible says, or I don't want to hear what God says. And you may think it's a dream for God not to be speaking to you. But believe me, it's your worst nightmare. It's your worst nightmare. When you come to realize that the Word of God is the source of all hope and joy
0: in this life, and you lose it, it's a nightmare. But in this New Testament passage that we read, uh, we
1: are, as I said, given insight and entrance into the endless night. And there's a voice that comes out of the bowels of a lost eternity there. And the voice comes into paradise and it comes to God's watchman, uh, the man Abraham. And the, the man who calls to Abraham asks him for relief. Send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, he says, for I am tormented in this flame. And you'll remember, of course, that the watchman Abraham said to him, No, he says, You got everything that you esteemed good in your life. The things that you thought were good, the things that you reckoned were good, well, you got them.
0: You got them all in your life. You also got my warnings and you got appeals to um,
1: the Pharisees who heard this parable. By getting the parable, we're being
0: appealed to. Is that not right? But now Abraham said to him, but now he says, you are tormented. And there's no relief
1: from that. You'll notice that the rich man doesn't ask him the time. The question here from e- from Edom is, watchman what time of night is it? Watchman, what time of night is it? As I said, are we in the first, second, third, or fourth watch? Is the judgment of God nearly over? But you notice that the rich man doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask Abraham what time of night it is. He doesn't ask Abraham
0: when will this judgment be over. Why not? Because there's no point. And he knows there's no point. There's only two places that don't need clocks, heaven and hell, even though there's time in both. Why don't they need clocks? Well, in one place, time flies,
1: as it always does when you enjoy yourself. And in heaven, there's an endless day full of mirth and gladness. As the hymn writer said, though we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. With no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Isn't that a wonderful thought? No less days than when we first began. In the other place, time, of course, drags and crawls infinitely slowly. In that place where the night never actually ends. And if, suppose for a moment, that the rich man had asked Abraham the watchman, What time of night is it, Abraham? The solemn answer would be that the night is no further gone than when you first entered here, and it never will be. And there's no point ever asking me the question, what time of night it is, because it has not and never will move. It hasn't moved forward, and it never will. You chose this destiny. When you booked this place here, you abandoned hope. You didn't abandon it so much when you entered it, but you abandoned it when you rejected me conscientiously and deliberately, and when you rejected my servant Lazarus, who was me to you at your gate, who you bypassed, who you knew he was a child of God or that he claimed to be a child of God, you bypassed him. You bypassed me. And as much as you bypassed him, one of the least of my children, you bypassed me. And when you chose to reject the Saviour, you booked a place in hell. And when you booked a place in
0: hell, you abandoned hope. You chose a night, a night that would never end.
1: Now you'll notice that the watchman's message doesn't actually end
0: with that. If you go back to our text, to chapter 21 and verse 12. The watchman said,
1: the morning comes and also the night. But then he says,
0: if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now sometimes these words are taken as deepening
1: the judgment somehow. As though the prophet is saying, if you will inquire, inquire. In other words, ask as often as you wish. Um, Return, come back. You'll get the same
0: answer. The morning comes and also the night and nothing is going to change that. And if you wish, stay with your idols and with your vanity." But,
1: friends, I don't think that that is the right interpretation of these words at all. I think these words, if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back, I think they give us what we long to hear, and that is a gospel message. They're a gospel message. Good news. Now, I've got two reasons for saying that. The first is that this word, return, at the end of the verse or turn, it's the same word, return or turn, is the classic Hebrew word in the Old Testament for repentance. It's the word shuv in Hebrew. And it just means (laughs) what it says in the English language, just to turn right round. Maybe it simplifies for us the idea of what repentance actually is. If you to ask me, well, what does it mean to repent? I would say to you, it's what the Hebrew tells you it is, it's to turn around. In other words, face in another direction and walk in it. The direction that you're in currently is facing away from God, and you are therefore not walking in the path of his commandments. But you are required to turn your face right round and to walk in the path of his commandments. The means, of course, by which you, that is, you do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when you turn towards him, the the father is in his face. Uh, if, you, if you turn towards the son, he will introduce you to the father. He will show you the father. It will be sufficient for you. And he will give you grace to walk in the narrow way that leads unto life everlasting. But that's turning. That's repentance. And that's what God requires you to do. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's the first reason for taking this as a gospel message. Turn is repent. The other reason is the last expression in the verse. It doesn't just say return. It says come
0: back. Or very simply in the Hebrew, come. It's the word come. And again, you see, that is the classic word of gospel invitation. If If
1: turning is repentance, then coming is just moving towards the Lord Jesus Christ according to his own invitation. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Or, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Or again, in Revelation, whoever comes, let him take the water of life freely. Or as Isaiah famously puts it in the 55th chapter, everyone who thirsts, he says, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come. Come. These are the two great commands that confront us today. Well, a command and an invitation. Um, When Paul uh, met the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he, he told them that he fulfilled the gospel commission by preaching what? Well, he said, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing, you see. Turning towards God in faith faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting and coming. It's not just a command. It is an invitation. And it's somehow easier to keep the command when you see it as an invitation. And if the Spirit of the Lord is at all working in us, we'll see the command as an invitation. It's a good thing to come to God. It is a good thing to come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Um the call really here, when the watchman says return
0: and come back, it's a call for you to, to come, uh, come out of Edom, and you'll be
1: received. Uh, don't be deceived by the morning when it breaks. Uh, the morning will come for a little time to you. Your country is going to get out of this mess. Your country is going to regenerate a bit. Your country is going to recover economically. The people are going to feel a bit brighter and they're going to feel a bit better. But if you don't take decisive action in terms of returning and coming to God, then the night will catch you, the night that will never let you go. And if you try to escape it, then you might suddenly find that it's too late. A bit like Lot's wife, she she left it all way too late, and even though she saw the fire coming,
0: her heart wasn't changed. She couldn't escape, and she became a pillar of salt. So these words return, come back, are gospel, and I think they help us
1: to understand the words in between. Look again at the verse. The watchman says, The morning comes and also the night. Return, come back."
0: But in between these expressions, there's this one. If you will inquire, inquire. Now, what does that mean? Well, I, I think it means simply this. If you believe that the night is coming,
1: if you believe that there's going to be an endless night that is going to overwhelm
0: Edom, well, he says, if you need to know how to get out of it, he says, just ask. Ask me. Ask my God. Here I am, and I am ready to help you. That's who I am as a watchman. The watchman's duty is to help. No, there's real encouragement there. He'll show the way.
1: The watchman will point us to Christ. And I know myself how good it is when someone comes and asks you a genuine question about how to get out of Edom and how to escape the night to come or the wrath to come. There's nothing like getting a question like that. It's very good as a minister and enjoyable to have lots of good and pleasant conversations. That's a good thing. But as a watchman, you want someone to come to you in the night and to say, what's the direction? How do I get home? Or what time of night is it? Or how can I flee the night? How can I be safe? And it's to see or to hear such questions that would mean so much. That's why I've Mentioned so often, even over these last few weeks, that we want this judgment to do its work. We want it to do a work from God. We don't want it to be just a, a thing that comes and goes, but a thing that leaves something behind it. I suppose what Isaiah is saying to the voice here from Edom is, come out of Edom and be separate from Edom, and you won't perish with Edom. Come out of Babylon, you won't perish with Babylon. Come out of the world and you won't perish with the world. In other words, the the message to Edom here, at one level is hopeless because she's
0: going to be destroyed, but at another level it's hopeful because she's not destroyed yet. Just as it is with yourself too. So there's hope. So national judgments will pass. Another day will come,
1: but another night will come too. And let me me just close with this. I mean, if, if you were to ask me tonight, if you were to accept that I am a watchman from God, if you were to accept that and if you were to recognize that you yourself are moving from one judgment to another, with some days punctuated in between them. But if, if you were to ask me what's the time,
0: watchman, what's the time? Well I can only answer from the word of God. No is the accepted time.
1: No is the day of salvation. No, no, no is the accepted time. No is the day of salvation. For the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the Lord
0: Jesus Christ. Watchman, what of the night? The morning comes, but also night. If you will inquire, inquire and return, come back. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for the dispensation of grace in which we live, for the
1: rainbow that reaches from the sky, of the multicolored grace of God, of your patience and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. O Lord, help us not to interpret your long-suffering as though it were all-suffering, or to be tempted to think that the hand which trembles in judgment is not able to smite utterly. O Lord, we pray to recognize an advancing night, one that will swallow up and devour all whose works are of the night. But help us too to see the dawnings of a brighter and a better day, not just a millennial glory, but something far greater even than that when the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. We pray to be of the number who wait for that day. And even if you appoint nights for us, weepings and hardships, knowing that day is coming, will cheer us and console us at all times. Bless us and the word on which we have meditated and now this psalm which we will sing.
0: In our Saviour's precious name, Amen.